Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today's book is Women, Race, and Class by Angela Davis. When I first started reading this book one day, I left it out accidentally on the kitchen table. And a person I know who is a generation older than I am walked past the kitchen table and saw it and kind of raised her eyebrows and said, oh, Angela Davis, you're reading Angela Davis. So I quickly grabbed the book and stuffed it into my bag and kind of said, yeah, I'm reading Angela Davis and like walked away really quick. I shouldn't have done that no matter how controversial the book might have been. But the truth is, once I actually read the book, I realized that there was nothing in the book that I should have been worried about anyway. It's just a history book. And it's actually a really interesting really readable history book and a hugely important contribution to American history because it foregrounds and places as central the experience of African-American women. Angela Davis does continue to be a controversial figure, though, and so I'm really excited to discuss her life and to discuss the ideas that she presents in this book with my reading partner, Brianna Jovan. Welcome, Brianna. Thanks for being here. Hey, Amy. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's move on to introducing our author, Angela Davis. So could you start us off by telling, we'll take turns, and Brianna, if you can take the first half of Davis's life, and then I'll take the second half. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. So let's go ahead and jump into the bio. Angela Davis was born on January 26, 1944, in Birmingham, Alabama, and we're going to listen to a clip of her talking about her childhood. This is in response to a reporter asking her if she condones violence. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. I remember from from the time I was very small, I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like uh, 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 niggas have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up uh, Carol? I, you know, we heard about the bombing and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organize themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asks me about violence, uh, uh, I just, uh, 
I just find it incredible. It, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. Davis attended a segregated black elementary school, and Angela's mother, Sally Bell Davis, was a national officer and leading organizer of the Southern Negro Youth Congress, an organization influenced by the Communist Party and aimed at building alliances among African Americans in the South. Davis grew up surrounded by communists, organizers, and thinkers who significantly influenced her intellectual development. Other early influences were her church youth group and Sunday school, which she attended regularly. She also attributes much of her political involvement to the Girl Scouts of the United States of America, which she loved as a child and in which she marched and picked to protest racial segregation in Birmingham. By her junior year of high school, Davis had been accepted by an American Friends Service Committee Quaker program that placed Black students from the South in integrated schools in the North. So she chose Elizabeth Earn High School in Greenwich Village and moved to New York. Davis was awarded a scholarship to Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, where Polly Murray would become a professor right after Davis graduated. At Brandeis, she was one of the three Black students in her class. She encountered the philosopher Herbert Marcuse, at a rally during the Cuban Missile Crisis and became his student. She later said, Herbert Marcuse taught me that it was possible to be an academic, an activist, a scholar, and a revolutionary. She worked part-time to earn enough money to travel to France and Switzerland and attended the 8th World Festival of Youth and Students in Helsinki, which was a communist-sponsored festival, and she returned home in 1963 to an FBI interview about her attendance there. In 1965, she graduated magna cum laude and then went to Germany to continue studying, and when she returned to the U.S., she was very interested in the Black Panther Party and the transformation of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC to all well to an all black organization. Davis earned a master's degree from the University of California, San Diego, in 1968, and then a doctorate in philosophy at the Humboldt University in East Berlin. Beginning in 1969, Davis was an acting assistant professor in the philosophy department at UCLA. Although both Princeton and Swarthmore had tried to recruit her, she was known as a radical feminist and activist, a member of the Communist Party, and affiliate of the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party. In 1969, the University of California initiated a policy against hiring communists, and at their September 19, 1969 meeting, the Board of Regents fired Davis because of her membership in the party, urged by Californian Governor Ronald Reagan. There followed a back and forth where a judge determined that she couldn't be fired because of her political affiliation. But then the regents fired her again for the inflammatory language, quote unquote, she had used in several of her speeches. In 1970, an event occurred that would change Davis' life forever. A heavily armed 17-year-old African-American high school student named Jonathan Jackson went into a courtroom in Marin County, California, 
were black defendants were on trial. He armed the defendants and took the judge, the prosecutor, and three female jurors as his hostages. As Jackson transported the hostages and the two black defendants away from the courtroom, one of the defendants, James McLean, shot at the police and the police returned fire. The judge and the three black men were killed and one of the jurors and the prosecutors were injured. It was soon discovered that Angela Davis had purchased several other firearms Jackson used in the attack, including the shotgun used to shoot the judge, which she bought at a San Francisco pawn shop two days before the incident. She was also found to have been corresponding with one of the inmates involved. Davis was charged with aggravated kidnapping and first-degree murder in the death of Judge Harold Haley, and a warrant was issued for her arrest. No one could find her, and four days after the warrant was issued, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover listed Davis on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitive list. So Davis became a fugitive and fled from California. And according to her autobiography, during this time, she hid in a friend's home and moved at night. On October 13, 1970, FBI agents found her in New York City and President Richard M. Nixon congratulated the FBI on its capture of the dangerous terrorist Angela Davis. While being held in the women's detention center, Davis was initially separated from other prisoners, and for the time, she was held in solitary confinement. Across the nations, thousands of people began organizing and movement to gain her release. In New York City, Black writers formed a committee called the Black People in Defense of Angela Davis. And by February of 1971, more than 200 local committees in the United States and 67 in foreign countries worked to free Davis from prison. John Lennon and Yoko Ono contributed to this campaign with the song Angela. In 1972, after a 16-month incarceration, the state allowed her release on bail from the county jail. On February 23, 1972, her $100,000 bail was paid by Roger McAfee, who was a 33-year-old white alfalfa former from Fresno, California, and the United Presbyterian Church paid some of her legal defense expenses as well. The trial was moved to Santa Clara County, and after 13 hours of deliberations, the all-white jury returned a verdict of not guilty. So I had never heard of any of that before, and and hearing that um, really interesting history, it was before my lifetime, but I can see definitely why Angela Davis is such a controversial figure, right? If you had lived through that time when that had been in the news, that she was possibly, you know, responsible for providing weapons for this very dramatic, like storming the courtroom, killing a judge. I mean, and then she was what considered by the president to be a dangerous terrorist. I mean, it's just so interesting. Okay, I'll continue with some of the later history. So um, Davis was a celebrity, as as you know, is not surprising. She was a celebrity in communist Cuba. She spoke at a rally there, and the crowd was so enthusiastic that she could barely speak over the cheering. In August 1972, Davis visit, visited the USSR, and she received an honorary doctorate from Moscow State University. In 1979, she was awarded the Lenin Peace Prize from the Soviet Union. 
She visited Moscow later that month to accept the prize where she praised the glorious name of Lenin and the great October Revolution. She also visited the Berlin Wall where she laid flowers at the memorial for Reinhold Huhn, who was an East German guard who had been killed by a man who was trying to escape with his family across the border of East Berlin in 1962. And Davis said, quote, we mourn the deaths of the border guards who sacrificed their lives for the protection of their socialist homeland. End quote. And she also said, quote, when we return to the USA, we shall undertake to tell our people the truth about the true function of this border. End quote. This is blowing my mind. I don't know about you, Brianna, but I have never heard another side of that history before. I mean, and so Davis is like really, truly um, a devout communist. Yes. Um, And I would be interested to hear what she thinks about Germany now with all of this hindsight, you know, and what she thinks about the USSR now that it's, you know, 40 years after all of this happened. But Mm -hmm. anyway, to go on, Davis was a lecturer at the Claremont Black Studies Center at the Claremont Colleges in 1975. I thought this was interesting that attendance at the course she taught was limited to, to 26 students out of more than 5,000 on campus, and she was forced to teach in secret because alumni benefactors didn't want her to indoctrinate the general student population with communist thought. College trustees made arrangements to minimize her appearance on campus limiting her seminars to Friday evenings and Saturdays when campus activity was low. And her classes had to move from one classroom to another um, so that no one would ever know where she was going to be teaching. And the students were sworn to secrecy that they were in her class. Davis also taught a women's studies course at the San Francisco Art Institute in 1978. And she was a professor of ethnic studies at the San Francisco State University in the 1980s. She was a professor in the History of Consciousness and Feminist Studies departments at the University of California, Santa Cruz and Rutgers University um, from 1991 to 2008. And since then, she's been a distinguished professor emerita. Interestingly, she left the Communist Party in 1991 and she founded the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism. And Davis said that she and others who had circulated a petition about the need to democratize the the structures of governance of the party were not allowed to run for national office. And she felt in a sense that she was invited to leave the Communist Party. So she did. Davis is a major figure in the prison abolition movement. She is called the United States prison system, the prison industrial complex, and she was one of the founders of Critical Resistance, which is a national grassroots organization dedicated to building a movement to abolish the prison system. In recent works, she's argued that the prison system resembles a new form of slavery, pointing to the disproportionate share of the African-American population who are incarcerated. As an alternative to prison, Davis advocates focusing social efforts on education and building engaged communities to solve various social problems that are now handled through state punishment. One last thing is that um, Angela Davis was an honorary co-chair of the January 21st, 2017 Women's March on Washington, which occurred the day after President Trump's inauguration. And the organizer's decision to make her a featured speaker was um, praised by many, but also criticized by some people. 
Um, and there was a journalist named Kathy Young who wrote that Davis's, quote, long record of support for political violence in the United States and the worst of human rights abusers abroad, end quote, undermined the whole women's march. So shall we start with our um, parts of the book that we want to highlight? I think that you have the very first quote. So do you want to just dive in? Yes, I'm excited for us to talk about some of the quotes um, from the book. They were just amazing. So let's get into it. The first one is from chapter nine, Working Women, Black Women, and the History of the Suffrage Movement. And this is on page 140. Quote, woman was the test, but not every woman seemed to qualify. Black women, of course, were virtually invisible within the protracted campaign for women's suffrage. As for white working women, the suffrage leaders were probably impressed at first by the organizing efforts and militancy of their working class sisters. But as it turned out, the working women themselves did not enthusiastically embrace the cause of women's suffrage. Unquote. So I wanted to speak about this quote because it is something that's still actually happening today. When you type women's suffrage in Google and look at the photos, they are mostly white women and not many women of color being represented as if we didn't matter, unfortunately. Um, as I was doing the research for this, just, you know, diving deep into the quote itself, I definitely did do that. Um, just typing in women's suffrage, going into the articles and just looking at the photos. I was like, where are we at? <laughs> What's going on? For another example, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, they actually prevented Black women from attending their conventions. This caused Black women to create their own organizations. For an example, National Association of Color Women. But the main focus was universal suffrage, not anyone being left out. This was really sad for me to read about this because Black women were doing everything in their power to be heard. They held church meetings and worked at schools and colleges to build a broader platform for themselves. With having a double whammy of being Black and being a woman, it lessened their chance of being heard, although they played an important role in passing the 19th Amendment. Yeah, I was really struck by this chapter too um, about women's suffrage. We've talked about a little a little bit about this um, when we talked about the racism of Elizabeth Cady Stanton in our episode on the Seneca Falls Convention. And then in the, the episode on women's suffrage, we talked about the timeline and we talked about the segregation of the women's parade. Um, but I learned so much more from this chapter. So um, I have a passage from this chapter that I'd like to share too. Um, and this is about an interaction between Susan B. Anthony, who was white, and Ida B. Wells, who was black, and they were working together for women's suffrage at this point. Um, and Davis writes about this, this period of history, and this is a, from the point of view of Ida B. Wells. So this is Davis quoting Ida B. Wells, quote, one morning, she, meaning Susan B. Anthony, had engagements in the city which would prevent her from using the stenographer whom she had engaged. And here I'll just throw in a stenographer was someone who like writes shorthand so you can just dictate your thoughts and the stenographer will write down your thoughts. So like a scribe. So um, Anthony remarked at the breakfast table that I could use the stenographer to help me with my correspondence she, since she had to be away all morning and that she would tell her when she went upstairs to come in and let me dictate some letters to her. 
When I went upstairs to my room, I waited for her to come in. When she did not do so, I concluded she didn't find it convenient and went on writing my letters in longhand. When Miss Anthony returned, she came to my room and found me busily engaged. You didn't care to use my secretary, I suppose? I told her to come to your room when you came upstairs. Didn't she come? I said no. She said no more, but turned and went into her office. Within ten minutes, she was back again in my room. The door being open, she walked in and said, Well, she's gone. And I said, Who? She said, The stenographer. I said, Gone where? Why, she said, I went into the office and said to her, You didn't tell Miss Wells what I said about writing some letters for her? The girl said, No, I didn't. Well, why not? Then the girl said, It's all right for you, Miss Anthony, to treat Negroes as equals, but I refuse to take dictation from a colored woman. Indeed, said Miss Anthony. Then, she said, you needn't take any more dictation from me. Miss Wells is my guest, and any insult to her is an insult to me. So if that's the way you feel about it, you needn't stay any longer. End quote. Um, So I loved that passage. I'd never heard about that incident before. And Davis goes on to explain that Ida B. Wells loved and admired Susan B. Anthony throughout her life. But it's complicated because Wells did recognize, even though she loved Susan B. Anthony, and and Anthony was so far ahead of a lot of women of her time, even that they were all friends with, but even Ida B. Wells says Anthony didn't do enough to make her personal fight against racism a public issue in the the suffrage movement. Um, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass were very close friends, and they remained very close friends throughout their lives. But Ida B. Wells recorded a conversation where Susan B. Anthony told her, quote, In our conventions, he was the honored guest who sat on our platform and spoke at our gatherings. But when the Suffrage Association went to Atlanta, Georgia, knowing the feeling of the South with regard to Negro participation on equality with whites, I myself asked Mr. Douglas not to come. I did not want to subject him to humiliation, and I did not want anything to get in the way of bringing the Southern white women into our suffrage association, end quote. And then Davis goes on to explain how Anthony wouldn't support black women who wanted to form a branch of the suffrage movement because racist Southern white women would withdraw their participation if black women were admitted. So Davis quotes Ida B. Wells again, saying that Susan B. Anthony had come to Wells and and asked, do you think I was wrong to exclude these black women? And Wells said, yes. She said, quote, I answered uncompromisingly, yes, for I felt that although she may have made gains for suffrage, she had also confirmed white women in their attitude of segregation, end quote. And there is written material from this time um, in history when Black men had recently gained the right to vote, but no women had the right to vote. And so it was an explicit stated goal of white supremacist men in the South that they wanted their wives to get the vote so that they could double their numbers at the ballot and exclude and kind of overpower the vote of the black community. And they wanted to get, so they wanted to get white supremacist women voting and then deliberately suppress the black vote in whatever way they could. And this just made me sick to mm-hmm. read about because that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm that's kind of a long passage, but my takeaway here is that, I mean, looking at this, this friendship between Ida B. Wells and Susan B. Anthony and... 
I just feel like white people, we need to constantly ask ourselves, do I privately disagree with racist policies or beliefs, but maybe at work, you know, when something racist is said, do I just stay silent and not speak up? All right. So another quote I would like to share is similar to the one we just spoke about. Women of color have always had the title of being a strong Black woman. These next couple of quotes that I'm going to share can kind of help us understand where that term derives from. This quote comes from Chapter 1, The Legacy of Slavery, Standards for a New Womanhood, page 5. Judged by the evolving 19th century ideology of femininity, which emphasized women's roles as nurturing mothers and gentle companions and housekeepers for their husbands. Black women were practically anomalies though. And so from the very beginning of the book, Angela Davis provided so many examples of black women fighting for their family, households, and for their voices to be heard. There is one example about a black woman in slavery and how slave owners never exempted pregnant women and mothers from working in fields. Instead, the mothers would create a knapsack, which is a piece of coarse linen cloth to carry her child as she worked on this platform. Here is a quote from chapter one, page eight. Slave owners naturally sought to ensure that their breeders would bear children as often as biologically possible but they never went so far as to exempt pregnant women and mothers with infant children from the work in the fields. While many mothers were forced to leave their infants lying on the ground near the area where they worked, some refused to leave them unattended and tried to work out to work at a normal pace with their babies on their backs. An ex-slave describes such a case on the plantation where he lived. Young women did not, like the others, leave her child at the end of the row. They had contrived a sort of rude knapsack made of piece of coarse linen cloth in which she fastened her child, which was very young, upon her back, and in this way carried it all day and performed her task at the home with the other people. Unquote. There is no cap to what a Black woman can do. Even in slavery time, we did not want to abandon our children. We knew that work had to be done. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure that our kids were taken care of as well. And so pretty much, as I mentioned before, as a strong Black woman, we have been fighting for years and we continue to do so to this day. And I was so struck by this part too, this chapter where she talks about how during enslavement, Black women were treated just the same way that Black men were and expected to do all the work that the men did. And that reminded me of Sojourner Truth in her anti-woman speech where she's like, I'm as strong as any man because I've plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed. Um, and she says, I- I'm a woman, but but she, had, she worked just as hard as a man. Um, so that's a really different history for Black women than, you know, the white Victorian stuck in a parlor doing needlework all day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like just, it's just very, very different. All right. So another quote I wanted to share is from chapter 13. Quote, like racism, sexism is one of the great justifications for high female unemployment rates. Many women are just housewives because in reality, they are unemployed workers. 
Cannot, therefore, the just housewife role be more be most effectively challenged by demanding jobs for women on a level of equality with men and by pressing for the social services, childcare, for an example, and job benefits, maternity leaves, etc., which will allow more women to work outside the home. So I wanted to talk about this um, because of so much, right? Even though women had to work, doesn't mean that they had the same opportunity as men in the workforce. There are many challenges women face when going into the workforce. For an example, gender roles, work-family balance, lack of transport, and a lack of affordable care. It's unfortunate that those are challenges that we face, and at the same time, it is our reality. Yeah. I love that you brought that quote out, Brianna, and that explanation too, because I was just thinking actually how the title is Women, Race, and Class. Mm-hmm. And the, and I was thinking, oh, the quotes I chose were kind of more about women and race, but I didn't mention class. And you just kind of brought everything together in that quote that, that talks about the struggles of like real families. And, um, and so talking about that intersection, I think is really important. So as we wrap up the episode, um, what would you say is an important takeaway from this book for you? So I have so many takeaways from the book. I promise we could be here for hours (laughs) because (laughs) I've in the past um, have conversation about the isms, um, classism, racism and sexism. So this one, as far as giving me a history lesson, made it just worth the while for me to just dive in deeper. Right. So let's talk about um, Angela Davis and her story. She stood for equal rights, political change, self-esteem, and loving yourself as is. So many people criticize Afros and Black power as if we were the violent ones. But at the same time, others did everything in their power to silence our voices. If that meant killing us, putting us in jail, keeping us from voting, and so much more. How are we the violent ones when we just want to be heard and noticed as just a human being? Women, race, and class really gave me a deep study of how strong Black people are despite the kickback we receive from other races. It makes me a proud Black woman to know how creative we are, how bold we are, and the strength we have to fight through whatever comes at us. That's beautiful, Brianna. Thank you so much. I've so loved this conversation with you. I'm, again, so, so grateful that you put this book on the reading list. And I'm really grateful that you and I got to discuss it together. And I just thank you for the time you put in and for the everything you shared today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.